Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. You know, if you're looking at trees, fruit-bearing trees, you always want to test the fruit. And week after week, uh, we've seen uh, fellow brothers and sisters, believers who've gone out all over the world and who are preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel. And I'm so thankful to be a part of the fruit and the the branches that are spreading out all over the world. I'm so thankful that we get to be a part of that with you guys. It's just awesome. We get to see the immediate fruit here in our lives, in our town. But really, you know, the way that the church works, it is not some tiny little cell. It is this growing organism that begins to spread out everywhere. And it's just natural fruit of a healthy church. Well, tonight we're going to talk about sin. I know it's your favorite subject. Uh, You probably are thinking, why didn't someone let us know before service tonight? I would have repented of everything. Now this message is really going to hurt. Well, I'm sorry. You can do it right now with the opening statements. But sin, death, and idols. And if the Lord gives us time, we may actually finish this book tonight. So... um, I don't know if that's a, a big goal or not, but the real goal is to understand what God is talking about. Now, last week we covered a passage that was kind of tough because it talked about asking according to God's will and whatever you ask, you'll receive. And it threw up a lot of question marks in our minds thinking, what exactly is he talking about that? And why are not all of my prayers answered? Well, this passage, I think, is even more difficult, but we have the rest of the Bible and the Holy Spirit to help us through. Look with me at verse 16 of 1 John chapter 5. He says, If anyone sees a brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we also hold upon your throne of grace. Lord, we accept a challenge because we know that in the digging In the searching, we see more of your grace, more of your glory, more of your nature, and we are challenged and transformed by your Spirit. Lord, tonight we expect the same thing. We lay our lives bare before you. We know that according to your work of your Son, that we are seated in the heavenlies, righteous by your will, Lord, by your design, by your death. But Lord, we know here on this earth, we are a work in progress. And we desperately need your input this very hour. Lord, I pray that all of the cares of this day and this world would be set aside 
just for a moment so that that deep, deep abiding work can be done in us. We're all yours, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Sin is an interesting thing. We all know that if you've been in a Bible study for very long, you know that the word that is commonly used throughout Scripture, especially the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, is the word hamartia. And you also know that this word primarily means to miss the mark. And so when it talks about sin, it implies this, that somehow mankind, by its action by our own works, are missing what God had originally intended. That's the idea. You take an arrow and you see a a target out there and you pull it back and you shoot it. And if you miss the target, you can say, I've sinned. (laughs) Well, we know that sin not only implies missing God's mark, but it also implies transgression and ungodliness. Look with me at verse 17. It says, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. The word that is used there for unrighteous is adikia, which is the exact opposite word for righteous. One means righteous, and it's always used in connection with Jesus, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the dikaion or the dikaios. And this word is adikia, the unrighteous. All sin is in a state of unrighteousness. Now, if you follow this word unrighteous all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, what it basically does is it segregates people between the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous are not necessarily those who do perfect things. For some reason, we always gravitate to this weird concept that righteousness is equal to perfection. Or that somehow someone has attained a certain level of beauty and perfection in this world and thereby they're almost perfect. Not the case. Righteousness actually has more to do with a person's relationship with God. Is this person in right communion with with God? Is this person exhibiting humility and trust and a desire to do what God says. If that is the case, usually that person is in a camp of righteousness. Now, we know that we are made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. He made the perfect sacrifice, as we read in 1 John chapter 2. He was the propitiation for our sins, the appropriate, perfect payment. But he says here, That all sin, all missing the mark, every transgression is unrighteousness. This constant state of rebellion and rejection of all that God has, all His provision, and all that He is. It's also something else. It's an indicator that something is not right with God. When we speak of people in the New Testament, the Old Testament, we speak of God, we're always speaking in terms of person to person. Even when we speak about God, we speak of Him, about His personhood as a real entity. He's unique, He's separate from us, but we relate like we would to anyone else. We speak to Him, we have a relationship with Him. 
And this implication that sin is a part of our lives implies that there is a bad relationship with God. It also reveals that all is not right not only with our relationship with God, but with ourselves and with others. Keep your finger here and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Is it hot in here or is that just me? Okay. It's not just up here. It's everyone else. That little hint, by the way, by saying that out loud was not for your purpose. It was so that the person who has the ability to turn the coolers up, that's where that come from. So I don't know if you ever picked up on that through the years, but that's, I'm just kind of letting you in, you know. Adam and Eve, it all goes back to the beginning. That's the real place that we understand what sin is and how it began. Because in the beginning, you have this beautiful picture of a loving God in relationship with his creation. He starts out with creating the world, and then he creates a lot of these animals, and then he creates a guy who will take care of them. He has charge of overseeing them and blessing their lives. And then he says that it's not good that man should dwell alone, so he creates a a helpmate suitable unto him, one that will fit in him perfectly. They'll be a great match. They'll be a great team. Well, enter someone who has fallen from heaven. And in this passage, chapter 3, we have what I call the anatomy of sin. If you want to know how it all began and where it started, it starts right here. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree? In the garden? The first thing that we notice that the tempter does, this guy, Satan, is that he first of all questions the authority and the power of God's Word. Temptation and sin always starts at this point. Here's why. If God has a plan for you and I, and he created all the earth and we belong to him, that must mean that his plan takes the top shelf. His plan is better than every other plan, and his ideas and will is higher than everyone else's. So, any other plan apart from him is missing the target, missing the mark, missing what God has actually called us to do. Do you ever think about that? Questioning God's authority. Here's a little note. And this may be hard for us to take in as Americans here, but it is a very real, true, biblical understanding of authority. God's blessings come through submission to His ordained authority structure. God's blessings come through his through submission to his ordained authority structure. And I'll tell you how that means. Now imagine the animals and running around. God set Adam in there. Adam's got a bigger brain. He's a little bit smarter. He's one of the people that can talk to God. I mean, you never have to worry about a deer sinning, do you? Sammy, think about it. You see a deer running through the forest. A deer's not going to... 
I don't even know how to do evil things. I just frolic through the forest and look majestic. Sorry. I came up with that one earlier today. I didn't, it seems to work. Anyway. But all of the animals are blessed because God put someone here that is supposed to care for them, to watch over them. He gave names to them. And in that, the animals of this world would be blessed under Adam. In the same sense, he created Eve. And he made Eve just a little bit in submission to Adam. Not because she was less than or worse than, but God had given Adam a particular job. And if she recognized that her position in life was given to her by God, not by Adam, then she realizes that this is God's plan. It has nothing to do with her relationship with Adam. It has everything to do with her relationship with God. That's why it says to kids, children, obey your parents, that it may go well with you throughout and you may enjoy longevity of days. Now, back in those days, that was stated because if you were kind of a rowdy kid and you were disrespectful, they could take you out to the edge of the city and throw rocks at you until you were dead. Kind of a little deterrent for juvenile delinquency. I'm not promoting that, by the way. However, the truth is, is that God has given children, parents, who are to care for them, who are to provide for them, who are to provide a secure environment. And if that parent is seeking to be submissive to the Lord in their role, then that child is absolutely blessed because of God's calling on that parent's life. Satan will come and he will say, is that really what God said to do? Is that really what God is commanding? And he will, every time, every chance he gets, will question the authority and the authority structure and the word of God every time. Why? Because it is in the very nature of his rebellion. He wanted to be like the most high God. I will ascend. I will be like him. I want the other place. You notice that... When someone begins to sin or to blow it, they're always looking for company. Come on. Just come with me. Nobody will know. It's no big deal. You're so paranoid. Come on, Eve. Is really, is that what God said? That's the first, first step in the anatomy of sin. Temptation. Now, God's designs are good, but Satan's designs for mankind are are bad. Why? I don't know exactly why he feels this way about us, but I think it has something to do with the fact that we are the objects of God's love. And this is what I mean. God has gone far and above and way out of his way to go out and redeem a group of people who are basically in constant rebellion against him. And because of this, there has developed, I don't know, again, I don't want to be a psychologist for Satan, but I believe he hates mankind. His desires are not to bless. When he approached Eve, it wasn't because, oh, look at this poor woman. She's so downtrodden. In this very oppressive, God-dominated society that he's set up here. If she could only be free and my heart goes out to every... Well, there's only one... The one woman in the world. 
not his case. It says from the beginning that he was a deceiver. Now look with me at verse 2 and 3. Notice Eve's response. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. The sin that was, became very famous, Eve's sin and Adam's sin, was not a sin that was based upon ignorance. Hey, you guys, come eat this fruit. Oh, really? Is it good? Yeah, come on in, have a bite. It is a sin by the very nature that it is a willful act of disobedience. It is a sin by the fact that she knew what God had said. She was able to quote immediately the words of the Lord. Sound very familiar? Second on the list in the anatomy of sin is this. Satan lies. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. In the New Testament, it says that Satan is the father of lies. He was a liar from the beginning, a murderer from the beginning, and he is the father of lies. The word that is used there in Greek is the pseudopater. He is the lie father. He was a liar from the beginning. And the thing about lies is lies are very, very dangerous. Now, when my little five-year-old son fails to completely tell the truth, it's even hard for me to call it a lie. It's not necessarily dangerous, but it's a lie nonetheless. We had a little incident the other day. He seems to have this fixation with gum. And so, I don't know, the little early development of the human mind is pretty crafty. And so I think mom hides the gum all over various places of the house. And somehow it winds up in his mouth. And somehow it's either me or someone else. We're walking through the kitchen or somewhere else. And there it is, stepping right in the gum. Or it will be on a chair or something worse. And so it's those moments where you start, son, come in here right now. Have you been chewing gum? No, no, dad. Is this your gum on the floor? No, I swallowed mine. (laughs) And inside you just want to say, liar, you're such a liar. Get out of this house. You're ruined. You're too young to be that good. But you don't. You know, you can't, you just kind of look at them. All right, go to your room. So you come in later and we talk about it. And finally, the other night I, I was out in the garage and I made him come out and he had the sad look. And I said, are you ready to tell me the truth? And he said, yes, dad. I said, okay, go ahead. Well, I was chewing gum and then I swallowed it. And I looked right at him and I said, you know what? Right now, you better just change everything because it's going to go really bad for you if you don't tell the truth. Really bad, Dad? Really bad. And so he told the truth. But the level of lie that Satan brings to the table is destructive. Eve had no idea that were she to buy this lie, this garbage from him, it would change the course of all humanity. 
It will change the course of history. Her life specifically. And it's a good point to bring out. That when Satan comes with his enticing lies and he says, has God really said that? I mean, come on. Don't you think that's a little restrictive? Come on. Who actually lives this way? It's 2006. Come on, get with the program. Everybody knows that that's outdated. And it may sound pretty good. Oh, really? I'm, I'm enlightened right now. But when we begin to listen to those seeds of doubt that reject the authority of God, I'm going to tell you, my friends, that lie is so powerful and deceptive and has the ability to lead to death. The third in this anatomy of sin we find in verse 5. Not only do we have lies, but we have enticement. Look with me at verse 5. Here's his reasoning. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The first thing that he tells Eve is that, hey, you're missing out. There is this enticement there. There is this sense of drawing in. Because the truth of the matter is that most of us would not go out and just sin and seek to do things that would ruin our lives. There always has to be this little catch in there that says, ooh, it would be great. It might have intellectual value for you, or there might be pleasure in it, pleasure that someone is keeping from you. I don't know if you know this, but God is very legalistic. And he's keeping good things from you. Now remember, this is the very nature of sin. God's is the highest. Everything else is missing the mark. He tries to turn her against God and say that God's hiding something from her. And then he manipulates her by looking at sin in a way we'd never looked at before. If somebody came up to you and said, do you want to ruin your life? Come with me. I'll show you how to do it in 15 minutes. Come on. Well, okay, I'm coming. No way. Ruin my life. Get out of here. But what if someone said to you, you're really missing out. You don't know what you're missing. Maybe you see that other member of the opposite sex. You have maybe your spouse and you know who they are and how all the weird things about them, all the good things, but that seems to be sort of clouded out by all the weird things that they have. And you see that other person and you go, wow, they kind of seem almost perfect. Could they be? And then you have that little voice. Well, maybe they are. That's how people are enticed to adultery. It's not because they're thinking, go ruin your life, go ruin your marriage, go ruin everything. They're thinking, ah, I might be missing out. Why does someone get involved with meth? I mean, we look around the city. It's actually just destroying families. And uh, I know many folks who've been struggling with that. And nobody gets into meth because they want to destroy their life. But there's that hook there. There's that enticement there that says, ooh, this is the best high. This is, oh, 
This will fulfill you. This will take care of all of your needs, all of your worries. All of that will fade away as you begin to take in the chemical. It's so good and enticing. And then the person later finds themselves doing things they could never imagine previously. That's the anatomy of sin. Questioning God's authority, lying to us destructively. And then enticement bringing us in. Keep your finger here in Genesis and look with me over at James chapter 1. Here's the best description of it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. But do you see the little progression here? God, why are you allowing me to go through this? I don't know how many times I've said it myself or someone else's, I've heard them say it. Lord, just take away the desire from me. Just, why do I have this desire to sin? Why do I want to do this thing that's wrong? I know you out there. You're all humans. You've struggled with that. You've cried out to God. Lord, I don't want to be tempted by this. And in essence, we're saying, Lord, it's your fault because you're not taking away the temptation. But with every temptation, he's given us a way of escape, a way to leave that. And in that temptation, his saints... His saints are brought to a completely higher level because our faith is being tested. But never let it be said that God would ever tempt you or I with evil or entice us to do something wrong. That is the work of the devil. Now, he only entices us with things that look good to us. Get that. Think of all the weak areas in your life, and that's where he attacks. He doesn't play fair. He doesn't like you. He hates you. And so he's not going to go, okay, well, this, this is kind of a weak Christian. I'm going to take it easy on them for a while until they get some, you know, some muscles on them, and then I'm really going to let them have it. But I'll let them have it in an area that they're really strong. Forget it. Forget it. Sin doesn't work that way. Sin comes at you in an area and in a place of your greatest weakness. It's a place of enticement, an area that you're easily drawn away. All right. We have questioning God's authority, Satan lying, his enticement. But let's look back at Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. And we see consequences. This is what happened in verse 6. So when the woman saw that it was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together And made themselves covering. The first consequence was shame. It's something that 
these two people had never experienced before. They had sort of lived in their own nudist colony. (laughs) They didn't know. It's just like little babies running around, very innocent. You know, you have a little baby, you have guests over and a a toddler. And immediately when you have the guests over at the house, they immediately run out in the middle of the crowd, completely naked, and kind of look at everybody and then run off. (laughs) What are you doing? And they just giggle. No shame. They don't know what shame is. They don't care. That's Adam and Eve. They didn't care. But then all of a sudden... They didn't understand the full impact of the consequences, and they were immediate. You see, I can imagine Adam sitting there, you know, looking at his wife. God said that we would die. Do you remember that? I I took a bite, honey. I'm okay. Really? Is it good? Yeah, it's good. I think I'm getting smarter already. That's debatable. That's conjecture. That's not the Bible, by the way. That's not even in the Hebrew. So he takes a bite. Oh, we didn't die. But immediate consequence of sin is shame. Though the fruit may taste good, though it may look great and it's enticing, once you have a connection and relationship with God, you take the bite And immediately, shame follows. There's no real joy or peace or fulfillment in sin. Period. Shame. Look at verse 8. We'll read verse 8 through 11. Not only is there shame, but we notice alienation from God. Spiritually broken. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Alienation from God almost immediately. Why? Because there is a recognition that there is disobedience from what God had said, which brings shame, which brings a bad relationship with Him. Not only does it produce a bad relationship with God, but it produced a bad relationship in families, blaming others. Look with me at verse 12. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Come on, buddy. I mean, really. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Immediately, everything breaks apart and begins to crumble. And here's the point. You and I, when we sin, we never sin alone. The consequences are always felt by those around. Personally, internally, emotionally, but also in your family. There are emotional, spiritual, damaging consequences. Now let's look at the physical consequences. Verse 14 The serpent is cursed 
and he becomes at odds with the seed of mankind. In verse 16, Eve becomes uh, pain-filled in childbirth. With every child that she bears, she will endure immense pain. And then Adam, in verse 17 through 19, is told that, hey, this nice garden that you had and the cool job of naming animals and basically hanging out with your wife, that's over. Every bit of food that you eat will be grown and will come by the sweat of your brow or the sweat of your face. And so everyone there had immediate physical consequences to their action. But what about the statement that said, well, you're going to die. They didn't die immediately. However, there was a great consequence that was yet to come. Look with me at verse 22 of this chapter. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken So he drove out the man and he placed a cherubim at the east of the garden in Eden and a flaming sword, which turns every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Mankind lived in a beautiful garden. It was God's best, his highest, his will, his perfection. But he placed this tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle. He placed it there because there is no real love without choice. No real love unless there is a chance for choice. If your kids only obey you because they're afraid that you will beat them, there's no guarantee that they love you at all. They may serve you in fear, but may hate you in spirit, emotionally inside. But when there is a choice to do good and to do evil. There is real love fostered because now a person can say, I will obey you not only because you're great and you're wonderful and you're powerful and there are consequences, but I will obey you. I will make a choice to reject that which is wrong because I value you. Well, there was a tree of life there. And the general idea is that this person could continue to live for a long time and continue on. In fact, we know that Adam lived short of a thousand years. Not bad for a first human. They did pretty well. But he died physically. Not only was there a physical death, but it was a spiritual death that took place. Prior to that point, mankind had the choice to sin or not sin. But after that, every human that was born was born a sinner. How do I know that? Every one of them sinned. <laughs> the, the, the proof is in the pudding. With one exception, Jesus Christ, Son of God, born of a virgin who came to this earth sinless and perfect, but everyone else a sinner. Physical death, spiritual death in our relationship with God because now all of a sudden there was a barrier between God and and his creation, and the relationship continued to get worse until Jesus came along.
All right, look with me back at 1 John. We'll get to our text. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give life for those who commit the sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray for that. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about one in the church who is practicing immorality. This person, he says, Paul says, is practicing the kind of immorality that the pagans don't even practice. It is that he has his father's wife or possibly his mother-in-law. Anyway, the church didn't do anything about it. And this was what Paul said concerning this. He said, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We see a destruction, a sin leading to death. But there's also the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This was because of sexual immorality and flaunting it before the church. But Ananias and Sapphira was a sin of lying. They said, oh, it's early in the church. We sold our land. We came and we gave it to the church. And we want to do this in front of everybody. And uh, Peter says, why have you held back some of the money? Isn't all the money yours? Why do you have to lie to God and the Holy Spirit and tell everybody that you sold it for this much and yet you kept some of it back and you're giving this to the church? It's not so much that you left some back, but why do you want to lie to God? And immediately Ananias dies on the spot. And when his wife comes in and she's questioned, she dies also. And it says that great fear entered the church. But as far as we know, as we look throughout Scripture, it's, it's really a very isolated, unique incident. So what is this sin leading to death? Well, there's an, another issue. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 1... We see that Paul speaking about two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, he says, whom I have delivered for that they may learn not to blaspheme. He said, I have delivered them unto Satan. So is that the sin that is leading unto death? Interesting. I know you're more confused, but I have your attention. It's good. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Let's look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slave to obey, you're that one slave whom you obey, whether to sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that through though you were slaves of sin... Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. But just for just as you presented your members of slaves of uncleanness and a lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things which you now are ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves to God, you have your fruit to holiness. And the end is everlasting life. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This passage in 1 John can be hard to determine, but I believe in light of Romans chapter 6, it's pretty easy. You see, if you'll remember as we have gone through this book, there were a group of people who John spoke of as leaving the fellowship. They went out from us because they were not of us. He's not speaking of believers who have sought out a different church. Please don't misunderstand. But he's saying those who have gone out and sought a different philosophy, who have said, I reject the truth that has been revealed in this book and I want to add to it and I believe there's more and I, and I disagree about the very nature of Jesus Christ and your relationship with Him. And because of that, I leave out. And in essence, what we see is this whole idea of Adam and Eve walking away from a tree that was in the garden that was life. What is it stated about Jesus? I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father apart from me. Over in the book of Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, it says in the middle of the new Jerusalem, there is the tree of life which provides healing for the nations. Here's the sin leading unto death. An open and complete rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is done so by a so-called believer. The reason I say so-called is that it's hard for each one of us to judge a person's heart. We may get a good idea or a good feel or a good impression for someone, but we may not really know their heart. God truly knows. But a life bears fruit of what is on the inside. Isn't that true? Can you say amen to that? Life bears fruit of what is on the inside. And so if there is real abiding life and truth in Christ, there will be that fruit that we spoke of at the beginning of our study. But if that's not there, and a person comes in the midst of the body of Christ, and they walk away and reject it and begin to promulgate something else, This is a sin that is leading to death. The the word that is used there in Greek is prosthoneton, or towards or leading onto which is dying and dead. It is toward that which is dead. A life in Jesus Christ is toward and connected to life, truth. The source of all reality. The best source. Real life. Real nutrients. But a life that is turned and walked away from that is completely toward death. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Because it does not produce any fruit. Only destruction. Okay. Quick practical things. How do I and how do you Respond to this person. Now, we read this and we think it's a little harsh when he says, I don't say that you should pray for this. There's a sin leading to death and I don't say that you should pray for that. 
See, that's a little harsh, isn't it? No, it isn't. If you'll read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it actually brings health to the body. It brings health and reality by saying to a person, you know what's right, you've heard the truth, and now you openly reject it, and you willfully bring others into your rebellion and bring destruction and death into their lives. And it is very within my rights and very appropriate for me to reject that. And I'm going to let God deal with you. But here's the positive aspect of this. You can always preach the gospel to a non-believer. Right? That's where the grace comes in. They may be in a state of rebellion. You may have to say, hey, look, don't bring that junk around here and don't pretend to be a believer. It's false. It's false teaching. It ruins people's lives. But right now, I will preach the gospel to you and I will tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. And I will continue to reach out to you in that manner. That is the positive aspect of this. But at the same time, to bring health in the church, you can't put up with it for one bit one. Why? Because it leads to death. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.